Good evening and welcome back to another Military History with Liam. I am your host, Liam Klingen. Today, we will be reading a lot of excerpts from the book Japan's Infamous Unit 731, first-hand accounts of Japan's wartime human experimentation program, authored by Al Gold. The Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kuangtung Army, popularly known by its codename Manchurian, Manchurian Unit Number 731, or simply Unit 731, was a secret biological weapons research and development unit maintained by the Imperial Japanese Army in the outskirts of Harbin in Japanese-controlled Manchuria, northeastern China for the duration of World War II in Asia and the Pacific. It has gained Inter, uh, international notoriety in recent decades as research revealed the shocking details of Unit 731's core wartime activity, the use of thousands of human guinea pigs for medical experimentation. The vast majority of these human subjects are believed to have been Chinese nationals taken prisoner over the course of the Second Sino-Japanese War that originated in the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in September 1931 and that grew to full-blown warfare in July 1937. Men, women, and children of other nationalities were also used for experiments and babies born to women in Unit 731's custody apparently were not spared either. This is the, an, expert, an excerpt from the book that we will be reading through today. I want this to be known that this is a very hard subject to talk about and I feel is my job as an aspiring historian to go over these things with you guys because I feel like a lot of people don't actually know about the wartime atrocities of Japan because Japan's own country to this day will not acknowledge these things that have taken place in World War II and prior to World War II leading up to what we have towards the end of 1945. So with that being said, I am not reading this full book. I am reading excerpts. I'm going to be reading and hitting the main points and hitting the things that I want to, that I find the most interesting. Viewer discretion, listener discretion is advised for this podcast. So what we need to do is we need to understand is that there was no innocent parties in World War II, but Japan kind of gets brushed under the rug for its atrocities that could have been released onto the world and that were released onto the world. Millions of people suffered under the Japanese imperialistic rule. But what is taught in classes mainly is what we see. We see the Holocaust. We see the German atrocities. But the Japanese side of everything gets brushed under the rug. And today we will be talking about that. This book outlines medical experimentation that was conducted by Unit 731. Heinous acts including injecting human subjects with pathogens, monitoring the progress of diseases by drawing blood samples from, and conducting vivisection on live individuals, exposing human subjects to infected insects in an open-air testing field, infecting a healthy individual with venereal disease by way of forced sexual intercourse with a carrier of venereal disease, causing frostbite on the limbs by exposing them to water and cold air and sub-zero temperatures. These are just a short little piece of the atrocities that were happening on a daily basis in Pinfang. Also, this is where 
we'll be getting into who is running these experiments. It is just awful to hear about. It is awful to learn because I wasn't privy to this information until probably a few months ago when I listened to an own podcast about this, learning about Unit 731. And I've been reading and getting many different accounts and it's just, it's very brutal, the things that Japan would have been able to do if the war would have lasted a little bit longer or was going in their direction in the Pacific side of things a little bit differently. We could be having a different conversation right now. So, as of right now, this is what the reasoning was to start looking into Unit 731. There is Americans, there is British, Australians, French war correspondents and army officials that would go and go to the battlefields of the Russo-Japanese War and they were seeing the conditions at the hospitals that the Japanese had. They took sanitation, they took all of that stuff very seriously because beriberi, which was a disease that ravaged the Japanese ranks during the Russo-Japanese War, killing over 27,000 Japanese soldiers. It is a disease in which the body doesn't have enough vitamin B1 or thymine. So that is their reasoning because they wanted to stop and have a minimal of the silent enemy as, that is, as it's known as disease. Because disease in history has taken more life in battle than bullets, swords, anything of that nature. So, we're going to go back to the book here. In all wars up until the Russo-Japanese War, it had been known that the silent enemy, disease, took a greater toll of lives among fighting men that did bullets. With the outbreak of the conflict with Russia, Japan made history by resolving to, to learn from her mistakes. So, right there, right away, you're getting a good sense of they're wanting to learn from the mistakes that they have seen that we'll get into from the Civil War, all the wars prior to this as well. By the beginning of the 20th century, her scientists were already gaining fame for their work and feathers in their caps included discovery of the causes of beriberi and dysentery. One strain of bacteria, the Shiga bacillus, even carries the name of its Japanese discoverer, Dr. Shiga Kiyoshi. The Western press termed the Japanese scientific fanatics a telling commentary on the lack of scientific awareness in other countries of the world, especially in military medicine. By contrast, Japan's army had come to be, and if not, the world leader in this field. A perspective on Japanese military medicine at the time of Japan's war with Russia in 1904-05 is offered by a U.S. Army doctor, Louis Livingston Seaman. The Japanese granted him the privileges of a foreign military attaché and he accompanied Japanese troops in Manchuria during the Russo-Japanese War. In addition to visiting field and base hospitals in Manchuria, he also observed hospitals in Japan. After the war, he published a book titled The Real Triumph of Japan, The Conquest of the Silent Foe. In it, he writes, the history of warfare for centuries has proven that in prolonged campaigns, the first or open enemy kills 20% of the total mor mortality in the conflict, while the second or the silent enemy kills 80. This dreadful and unnecessary sac sacrifice of life, especially among the Anglo-Saxon races, is the most ghastly pro uh, proposition of modern war and the Japanese have gone a long way towards conquering or eliminating it. I unhesitatingly assert that the greatest conquests of Japan have been in the humanities of war and the stopping of the need needless sacrifice of life 
through preventable disease. In our war with Mexico, he is talking about the Mexican-American War, the proportion of losses was about three from disease to one from bullets. In our great civil war, nearly the same proportion obtained. No lessons to seem have been learned from those frightful experiences, for later statistics show no improvement. In the French campaign in Madagascar in 1894, 14,000 men were sent to the front, of whom 29 were killed in action and 7,000 perished from preventable disease. In the Boer War in South Africa, the English losses from disease were simply frightful, greater than even our Civil War record. But the grounding piece of imbecility was reserved for our war with Spain, where in 1898, 14 were needlessly sacrificed to ignorance and incompetency for everyone who died on the fire line or from battle casualties. So he is laying it out right here. Japan is the forerunner of this field. They are hitting it head on. They're like, they see the West. They see them, their unsanitary conditions, like speaking for the Civil War. Men in field hospitals getting exposed to gangrene, getting gangrene more often because surgeons were using the same medical equipment on multiple people, bloodborne pathogens. This, this was the science that they just were like, oh, we're just gonna kind of brush by. While the Japanese were like, well, we need to figure out what dysentery is. We need to figure out berry berry. And soon enough, they figured out water filtration. They gave, were able to give out water uh, purification tablets to their troops on the front lines to prevent dysentery as much as possible. So with that being said, we're just going to keep taking a look at the other aspects of this craziness that is going on. This is just, this is just the background of what is going on. So. We need to be talking about our friend, Ishishiro. He is not our friend. He is an, actually an evil man that more or less is the cause for almost the potential of millions of people dead across the globe. So right now, I'm going back to the book. I'm going to be giving you a background of Ishishiro, who was the mastermind behind Unit 731, who his devilish ways, his can't express this enough what an awful human being he was in general. So let's look into Ishishiro. We're gonna be getting right into that. But before I want you to I want this to be known, Ishishiro is a mass murderer, and there was no punishments given to this man after the war. We will get into that in the next podcast, but this is the background on Ishishiro. Ishishiro was born on June 25th, 1892 in the village of Chiyoda, in an area about two hours drive from what is today central Tokyo. His family was one of the wealthier ones in the region by village standards, with respectable landholdings that gave them the aura of rural aristocrats. This economic status earned respect and more importantly, loyalty from the surrounding inhabitants. Ishii would put this loyalty to good use for himself in the coming years. In 1916, Ishii entered Kyoto Imperial University. It was a prestigious establishment and its medical department was especially known for its work in bacteriology, the, Schwartz, uh, the Schwarzer of Japan. In addition to honors and awards he earned in the United States and Europe, he received a doctorate of medicine from the university in 1911. 
As a student, Ishii seemed to have had a personality problems. More, uh, he created problems for others. He was pushy, inconsiderate, and selfish. In harmony with these personality traits, he was also a ladder climber. In a society where Confucian-rooted respect for superiors and strong uh, concisiveness of hierarchy dictates boundaries of behavior, Ishii's forward drive ran all over, and he would do anything to ladder climb. He would do anything. He, in ways, he was beloved by the, his subordinates, but he would do anything to get up and climb up the ranks. Ishii felt a calling to the military, perhaps to serve his country, but surely to advance his own goals of medical research. In 1920, he graduated university and enlisted in the army. Shortly thereafter, he was commissioned a lieutenant, and by the summer of 1922, he had managed to gain a transfer to the first army hospital in Tokyo. His fever for research was appreciated by his superiors, and two, two years later, he was assigned to return to his alma mater for postgraduate work in bacteriology, among other fields. During these days, he was a frequent visitor home of um, he was a frequent visitor to the home of the school president, and like it was like I just showed, this is his ladder pushing. He was getting in with everybody, rubbing elbows with as many people as he could. He eventually grew close enough to the top man at the Kyoto Imperial University to marry his daughter. This marital link cemented his position with the university's medical research people and facilities. In a sense, thus, it is also the beginnings of the foundation for his human experimentation in China. He's getting those connections. At this point, this is just the beginning stages. So, stay, straying away from the book a little bit, at this point, Ishii is starting to fund his own trips to America, to abroad, to learn more about medicine from other countries, to learn what they're doing wrong, bringing them back to Japan, and then eventually to Manchuria. With Manchuria, we're going to be talking about a very important aspect of this, the Manchurian incident at the North Barracks. At 10.30 on the 18th of September, 1931, the Manchurian incident was started by the insolment explosion of the railway track at Lu Tao Co between Mukden and Wenkuntan stations of the South Manchurian Railway, which was executed by the Chinese regular soldiers. After the explosion, the Chinese soldiers attempted to flee themselves in the direction of the North Barracks, but just then, they were found there by the Japanese railway guards under Lieutenant Kawamoto, who were patrolling the place on duty. Suddenly, both sides exchanged the bullets, and the Japanese made a fierce pursuit after them. On the next moment, the Chinese forces some three companies appeared from thickly growed sorghum field near the North Barracks, against which the Japanese opposed bravely and desperately. Meantime, dispatching the urgent report to their commander, the skirmish developed into speedily uh, deployment of Japanese troops and was compelled to make a violent attack upon the North Barracks. After several hours of fierce battle, the barracks fell completely into the hands of the Japanese forces. On the other hand, the Japanese re regiment and Mukden rose in concert with the railway guards at midnight of the same day and succeeded and occupied the wall town. So, this is in Manchuria, which Jap Japan, for the most part, has full control at this point in 1933. And 1930, well, 1933, they have full control, but this incident happened in 1931, kind of setting the stage for 
where unit 731 is going to be conducting itself. So this is all the background information. I'm not reading everything from the book. You guys should go and buy it. Japan's infamous Unit 731, first-hand accounts of Japan's wartime human experimentation program. Absolutely recommend getting this book. I am not reading this whole book just for purposes of time constraints and all of that fun stuff. So, what we are going to be getting into next is I want to be taking a look at the early uses of biological weapons in history. This is from some research I'd done from National University's Library and the National Library of Medicine. In 1155, Emperor Barbarossa poisons water wells with human bodies in Tortona, Italy. 1346, Mongols catapult bodies of plague victims over the city walls of Kaffa, Crimean, Crimean Peninsula. 1495, Spanish mix wine with blood of leprosy patients to sell to their French foes in Naples, Italy. Polish fire saliva from rabid dogs towards their enemies in 1650. 1675, first deal between German and French forces not to use quote-unquote poison bullets. 1763, British distribute blankets from smallpox patients to Native Americans, which also seems to be a very common trend of the American frontiersmen and the American armies during the 1800s in which there was a lot of blankets with smallpox, typhoid, fever, that, and all those different crazy diseases to, for their goal of manifest destiny. 1797, Napoleon floods the plains around Mantua, Italy to enhance the spread of malaria. 1863, Confederates sell clothing from yellow fever and smallpox patients to Union troops during the Civil War. So, this being said, biological and chemical weapons have been used throughout history. Gases in the early World War I with mustard and chlorine gas. This is not a new thing. Biological weapons were being used throughout history. Chemical weapons more so World War I. So with that, they wanted to understand. This is what they want. So I skipped a lot of crazy information, so you guys need to get the book. So I'm picking it up from the book right here. This is from, this is a quote from Ure Yatoro. He was a researcher under, um, under the command of Ishishiro at Unit 731 in Pinfeng. This is a quote from him. He was already too weak to stand. The heavy leg irons bit at his legs. When he moved, they made a dull, clanking sound. His fellow cellmates sat around him and watched him. Nobody spoke. The water in the toilet was running with an ominous sound. In the corridor outside the cell, the guard stood with pistols strapped on. The commander of the guard was also there. The man's screams of death had no effect on them. This was an everyday occurrence. This was nothing special. To these guards, the people in here have already lost all rights. Their names have been exchanged for just a number written across the chest. I pause the quote. This is something that we have seen similarly with the Jewish population in the Holocaust getting branded like a cattle on their arm sent to concentration camps. This is what we see of in Unit 731. They're treating them non-human. 
to take to dehumanize them in that way. And this is where the term Maruta comes from. And Maruta, well, they referred to the prisoners, to the cellmates of Unit 731 as Maruta. Maruta meaning log, one log, two logs. We are not concerned where they are from or how they came here. The man looked like a farmer covered with grime. He was wasting away and his cheekbones protruded. His eyes glared out from the dirt and the tattered cotton clothes he was wrapped in. The team leader was fully pleased with yesterday's results. We never had such a typical change in blood picture and a rate of infection. And I was eagerly looking forward to see what changes would be present in today's blood sample. With high hopes, I came to the number seven cell block with the armed guards at my side. The Maruta I was working on was on the verge of death. It would be disastrous if he died. Then I would not be able to get a blood sample and we would not obtain the important results of the tests we had been working on. I'm gonna pause and take a sip of my water here. So this, the doctors included, dehumanized them to the point of just really just can, they, there are no, they're nothing. They're there for their research, disposable in some cases. Once they're done with their use, they die. They'll just kill them, barely feeding them. And they're living in this daily nightmare. These Chinese people that are around, and in some cases, uh, British, American, Australian troops, Filipino troops being tested on and Unit 731 later on in the war as well. I called his number, no answer came. I monitored through the window of the other four prisoners. To, I motioned through the window at the other four prisoners to bring him over. They sat there without moving. I screamed abusively at them to hurry up and bring him over to the window. One of the guards pulled out a gun, aimed it at them and screamed in Chinese. Resi uh, resigned, they, genuinely, uh, they gently lifted up the other man and brought him over to the window. More important to me was uh, the man was not going to die, was the blood flowing in the human guinea pig's body at the moment just before his death. His hand was purplish and turning cold. He put his arm through the opening. I was elated. Filled with a sense of victory and holding down my expressible, expressible excitement, thinking forward to how the team leader would be want, want, waiting for these results, I reached for the hypo, I reached for my syringe and needle and injected it into his vein. It made a dull, dull sound. I pulled the red black blood into the hypodermic. These cubic centimeters, five cubic centimeters, his face became paler. Before he'd been moaning, now he could not even moan. His throat was making a tiny rasping sound like an insect. With resentment and anger in his eyes, he stared at me without even blinking. But that did not matter. I got what I came for. I obtained a blood sample of 10 cubic centimeters. For people in laboratory work, this is ecstasy. And one's calling to his profession, showing compassion for a person's death pains was of no value to me. Treating them like absolute cattle, guinea pigs, like I was quoted saying, I'll read it again, blood flowing in the human guinea pig's body. They're just to them, they are just Marutas. That is it, nothing more. The other four men in the cell who had the same fate waiting for them could not contain their anger. They took water and poured it into the mouth of the dead man. This was an irreplaceable life it was trifled with. 
and oh, just the accounts. And these are all from Japanese doctors slash soldiers that were working in Unit 731 that were never imprisoned or put on trial. We'll get into that in the next podcast, like I said. Human experimentation gave researchers their first chance to actually examine the organs of a living person at will to see the progress of a disease. Vivisection was a new experience for the doctors of Japan. One former unit member explained that the results of the effects of infection cannot be obtained accurately once the person dies because the putrefactive bacteria set in. Putrefactive bacteria are stronger than plague germs. So for obtaining accurate results, it is important whether the subject is alive or not. The research methods in Manchuria allowed doctors to induce diseases and examine their effects on organs at the first stages. Researchers worked with interpreters to ask about emerging symptoms and took subjects out of cells at what they judged to be time uh, be the time for optimum results. Anesthesia was uh, um, anesthesia was optional optional whether they felt like using it or not according to a former unit member as soon as the symptoms were observed the prisoner was taken from his cell and into a dissection room he was stripped and placed onto the table screaming trying to fight back he was strapped down still screaming frightfully one of the doctors stuffed a towel into his mouth then with one click slice of the scalpel he was opened up even with the intestines and organs exposed a person does not die immediately it is the same physical situation as an ordinary surgery under anesthesia in which a person is operated on and restored. Witnesses at vivisections report that the victim usually lets out a horrible scream when the cut is made and that the voice stops, the voice stops soon after that. Oh, man. The researchers then conduct their examination of the organs, remove the ones that they want for study, then discard what is left of the body. Somewhere in the process, the victim dies through blood loss or removal of vital organs. A very brief testimony was provided by Kuromanzawa Mazakuni. He was advanced in age and weak at the time of the interview, and only photographs of him appeared on screen. His voice was almost inaudible. He spoke at the time he was working on a woman victim who had wakened from the anesthesia while being vivisected. The woman interviewing him asked, what happened? She opened her eyes. And then what? She hollered. What did she say? Asked the interviewer. Kuramazawa could not answer, then began weeping feebly and murmured, I don't want to think about that again. The interviewee apologized, waited a few seconds, and then tried again for an answer. He gave it through sobs. She said, it's all right to kill me, but please spare my child's life. And they did not. They often killed the baby and seeing the effects of the same thing through vivisections, through other means that we will be getting into as well, looking at the diseases and all of that. This is all under the watchful eye of Ishishiro. I haven't talked about it yet, but in Panfang, they had many satellites. They had many satellite areas. By that meaning, in the in like hundreds of kilometers in the area, 150, 200, 300 kilometers away, there was all these different sections of 
Unit 731, all with different names, more or less. They all had different, they had an open, uh, they had an open area where they would test diseases like cholera, the plague, other diseases in open air instead of a confined contained area. They wanted to see the effects of it. So it was this whole masterminded way of looking around and ultimately just awful. So we'll actually be taking a look from the book as well. A couple of these, we're gonna talk about the open air testing ground right now. It is called Onda. This was an open air testing ground, 126 kilometers pin, pin, from Pinfeng, about three hours by road. It was used for outdoor tests of plague, cholera, and other pathogens and experimental biological warfare bombs and other methods of human beings to pathogenic substances and open air situations. Tests generally used from 10 to 40 people at a time with subjects tied to crosses and circles of various sizes. The tests involved an element of trial and error and comparing results obtained from differently sized circles enabled researchers to determine ranges of effectiveness at various distances from points where projectiles struck or infected insects were released. When biological warfare bombs were tested, each Maruta was protected with headgear and metal plate hung from the neck to cover the front part of the body. These protective devices prevented death or serious injury that would make it impossible to obtain the needed data. They want, they want to wound this person because we will get into it. Arms and legs were left exposed so that they could be bitten by the disease carrying insects. In some tests, subjects were tied to vertical boards that were anchored into the ground at various distances and patterns from points of release. Careful notes were made of wind and atmospheric conditions and each person was marked with a number on his or her chest during each test for easy tracking of human specimens. Uh, going along with this as well, in this same facility in Onda, they would test shrapnel with gangrene. They would infect metal bombs with gangrene and the same thing, put people on crosses out in the middle of this field, and then they would protect them like they did their vital organs, exposing their legs and arms, and then they would get hit with this shrapnel bomb that was infected with gangrene, and so they could test to see how long people could survive or when the infection would take place. These sadistic acts of trying to protect their troops on the front line was their moral justification for doing this. I just want that to sink in that this is these are the things that they were trying to do to unleash on the civilian population which they did do. So that is just an example of one of the satellites um, in Xinjing under veterinarian Wakamatsu Yujoro unit 100 um, is in present-day Changchun, concentrated its research on pathogens effective against domesticated animals. The horses and edible animals of the Soviet and Chinese armies were the targets of this research. Unit 100 was also a bacteria factory producing large quantities of glanders, anthrax, and other pathogens. Sabotage was another focus of the operations here, and one experiment ent entailed mixing poisons with food to study their effects on subjects and to gain knowledge of appropriate dosages for various toxins. 
Additionally, extensive areas of land were cultivated for research into chemicals for crop uh, destruction. There is a, in this book right here that I'm not going to read all of them, there's about another 10 to 20 different facilities like this as well that all point back to Unit 731. So, we are now going to be getting into the, one of the biggest parts of Unit 731, which was their rodent and insect breeding wing of the facility in Pinfeng. Rats and fleas, which have spread disease among human beings throughout the ages, were carefully cultivated by the Japanese biological warfare specialists. They harvest rats for Manchuria's rat population and then enlisted school children to raise them. It required no difficult technique, just cages, food, and water. Pinfeng had rat cultivation cells they, that remain today as part of its ruins, which were staffed by youth corps members. So, that is, we're going to get into that as well from my own notes and research so they had there was this story of these 10 chinese men that were sent into the shed they were told um, they were only all in their 50s or plus they were told you will have food every day you don't have to work the only thing you have to do is wear these clothing and allow the feet fleas to grow on you and to breed and each day the japanese would come by collect the fleas that they need and so on. They were not allowed to talk to anybody. They were only allowed to cook their own food. They were only allowed to talk amongst the 10 of them. One day a laborer comes by, talks to one of the people that were raising the fleas, tells him what's going on. Next day, all 10 of those people that were raising the fleas were all simultaneously murdered and nobody knew why, but that is why. So, we're also going to be getting into what was the purpose of these rats and fleas? There was many purposes. They were to infect these with diseases and then release them on local populaces. So example here, cholera. At the human experiment centers, the first step into researching illness and possible vaccines against it, it uh, involved getting prisoners sick by injecting them with germs. One disease had been created in human beings. It would spread to population centers and after it ascertained that the disease had taken hold among the locals, the army and its researchers would move in to examine the victims and test methods of treatment. One method of spreading cholera used domesticated animal animals as carriers. Dogs were used to spread cholera in a village about eight kilometers west of Chinnam. Dogs caught in the village were fed pork laced with cholera germs and returned to the village. When the disease finished incubating and became active, the dogs would vomit. The other dogs would come along, eat the vomit, and they too would become infected. The dogs would also be stricken with diarrhea, and the feces would spread the disease among the other dogs and the people. Some 20% of those who contracted the illness died there. Survivors told of hearing the cries of sick people from their homes as they suffered. That's just, they're just releasing it on the local populace as their test, their test subjects. And this is from former army captain Kojima Takeo, who was a unit member involved in the cholera campaign, added his own testimony about the strange experiment in an interview. We were told that we were going out on a cholera campaign and we were all given inoculations against cholera 10 days before starting out. Our, obje our objective was to infect all the people in the area. The disease had already developed before we got there 
and we moved into the village, everyone scattered. The only ones left were those who were too sick to move. The number of people coming down with the disease kept increasing. Cholera produces a face-like skeleton, vomiting and diarrhea. And the vomiting and def defecating of people lying sick brought flies swarming around. One after the other, people died. Captain Kojima's further testimony in the section section of this book offers additional details on the type of cholera operation as well as the comments on the role in the army in Manchuria. I will not be getting into that because I would like you guys to purchase the book. I am not reading everything in the book. I am going over the highlights in this particular book on Unit, 31, Unit 731. There is many other books out there that I highly recommend reading. Do your own research on it. I'm just giving you guys that awareness because I feel like a lot of people don't know about Unit 731. They've never heard about it. Or even some people think that Japan was pretty much scot-free. You know, there are people out there that do believe that. But I feel like it is, it should be that you accept the history that was there. You need to, re you need to repent. Japan has never do th done that. They've never apologized for any of the war atrocities that they have done because they believe that Emperor Hirohito was God himself. The whole ideology as well, they didn't take much blame. Of course, they, there was a lot of Japanese soldiers that were put at the, uh, on trial as well. So there was some justice given, but like we learned, a lot of the justice was kind of thrown aside due to the start of the Cold War. So another thing that we're going to be looking at is the plague. So I'm going to be going back to the book here. Armies that want, armies that want to use disease as a military weapon want something that acts fast and is fatal. Cholera, for instance, with its incubation period of about 20 days would not generally be feasible tactical weapon. Plague, on the other hand, starts killing within three days and has a long, illustrious history as a weapon of biological warfare. One of the earliest recorded uses of plague in warfare was in 1346 in Crimea, where the Geno uh, Genoese army was besieged inside a walled fortress by the Mongols when plague broke out among the latter. They turned this development to their advantage by throwing the dead diseased body over the Genoese ramparts. After that, the Mongols unwittingly carried the plague through Asia and the troops from Genoa carried it back to Europe where it became the feared Black Death. So, in October 1940, a plague attack was conducted against the Kamenjai area of the port of the city of Ningbu. This was a joint operation by Unit 731 and one of its affiliates, Nan, uh, Nanjing-based Unit 1644. In this operation, plague germs mixed with wheat, cloth scraps, and cotton were dropped from the air. A resident in the area, um, Kim Guafa, of the area attacked was 14 years old at the time and working in a tofu, tofu shop. He was infected but managed to recover and is said that he is the only living person today who can bear witness to the Japanese biological warfare experiment in Ningbu. His testimony has been recorded in video documentary and is printed literature in Japan. He recounts, One day, a Japanese plane flew over and kept circling. Then, it dropped something that looked like smoke. It was wheat flour and corn and other things. The next day, people started getting sick. Three days later, the tofu shop owner's two children were dead and other people were getting sick and dying. 
Nobody could understand what happened. My own family died, one after the other. There was misery all around. Everyone who died did so in pain and agony, going into convulsions. At first, the bodies turned red, then after death, they turned black. More than 100 persons died within a few days after the attack. The affected area was closed to the public and remained sealed off until the 1960s, when it was ascertained positively that there was no further risk of infection. They're just releasing it on local populaces with no regard of human life. And to me, it's, it's, his, it's tough history that needs to be taught. It is history that needs to be learned by the people. Because if history is forgotten, these same atrocities will occur in the future. And they will never stop happening unless we are proactive and teach our kids the right things of what we should be learning in history. So it just troubles me that this was never really taught. I didn't learn this until I was 23 years old, 24. And I feel like a lot of many people have no idea of these type of crimes and atrocities that were committed. So we're going to take a look at another firsthand account as well of plague-like symptoms. I was 15 years old at the time, and I remember everything clearly. The Japanese plague spread something that looked like smoke. A few days later, we found dead rats all over the village. At the same time, people came down with high fevers and aches in the lymph nodes. Every day, people died. Crying could be heard all throughout the village. My mother, father, and all, eight people in my family died. I was the only one in my family left. My mother had a high fever all day. She was crying for water and clawing at her throat. Then she let out a roar like a lion and died before my eyes. Altogether, 380 people died in the village. At times, as many as 20 people died in one day. As soon as the first person started dying, Japanese came into the village wearing protective clothing and masks. They went around the village for three days giving injections to the people. They administered two shots, one to the arm and one to the chest. Some of the people who got these shots also died. These successful, quote unquote successful air attacks showed the disease could be delivered by air and so the army doctors redoubled their efforts to produce and accumulate rats and fleas. Still in Imperfections remained in the system. The early attacks had all been carried out by slow, low-flying planes that were effective against peaceful, unarmed villages or cities. Battlefield conditions would be far more demanding. Ishii wanted to have the ability to deliver pathogens from higher altitudes and de started developing a series of bombs that could deliver rodents and insects from greater heights. The test ground at Anda started seeing drops from higher altitudes using different prototypes of biological warfare bombs. Early attempts had proven that the explosives were not practical for releasing the bomb contents since the detonations killed the insects. Glass bombs were experimented with and then Ishii remembered Japan's ceramic heritage. He went into villages where traditional uh, kilns had turned out ceramic wares and ordered bombs made to his specifications. So, this is where they severely started ramping up this is where they started ramping up everything in terms of the rat and flea production. They had enough fleas to infect the entire 
world population six to seven times over. They had billions and billions of fleas, disease and plague-ridden fleas that they were waiting for the right moment to infect the world with and, and pretty much destroying the world. And we are that close. And yet this is something that is not being taught in history. So I'm going to go back to the book here and we're going to kind of go into another one of the horrifying things that they did to prisoners, a.k.a. what they called Marutas as well. People were taken from prison into below freezing temperatures. They were tied up with their arms bared and soaked with water. Water was poured over their arms regularly. Sometimes the ice that formed on them would be chipped away and water again poured over. The researcher would strike the limbs regularly with a club. When an arm made a sound like a wooden board's being hit, this indicated that the limb was frozen and through, and from there, different methods of treatment were tested. Legs and feet were exposed to similar treatment. Temperatures in Manchuria can reach as low as minus 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. Some of the tests were conducted outdoors in these winter conditions. At times, electric fans were used to speed the, uh, the freezing. At Pinfeng, Yoshimura had his own large refrigerator lab that allowed him to freeze subjects all year round and reach even lower temperatures than out in the open. Temperatures that reached as low as minus 70 degrees Celsius. Jesus. That is, that's just crazy to me. The lengths that they went to to human testing is, to them, was invaluable information. Some experiments resulted in the flesh and muscle falling from the bones. Others left the bones so brittle that they were shattered by the blows from the clubs. Either way, the eventual result was the same. Gangrene and the rotting away of extremities. Several former Unit 731 members have commented on seeing victims in experiments. They reported that the victims had no hands and or no feet left after these. And I am going to conclude the first part of the Unit 731. I want you guys to get this book. I've skipped, that was skipped over hundreds of pages. And, and in the next podcast, I want to talk about the aftermath of Unit 731, the cover-up and things of that nature. The horrific acts in history need to not be forgotten because they will be repeated. History always repeats itself and we need to remember that. Remember, this book is Japan's infamous Unit 731. If you would like, please follow me on Patreon. It is Liam with his, Liam in History on Patreon, on Instagram, on TikTok. Follow there. Get on the social medias. We're grinding. We're grinding it out right now. Make sure to give me a rating on Spotify and Apple. And wherever you get your podcasts, my podcast is available. I appreciate all the love and support. It was a tough episode today, but remember, history needs to not be forgotten, but learned and make yourself better from history at the end of the day. The things that Japan did, that Germany did during the Second World War will never be forgotten because of the mass atrocities committed upon millions and millions of human beings not marutas, not cattle being branded, given a number, the dehumanization of people throughout history will only repeat, and the oppression of people will only repeat if 
history is not learned and it is forgotten. So I will leave it on that note. Have a great day, everybody. And I will see you in the next podcast.